we're back again, people. And Mike, how you been? Good. Can I mention something medical? Uh, as long as it's not intended for me. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, two <laughs> days ago, I had double hernia surgery. So oh. right now I'm uh, intense pain in my, my solar plexus area. They say it's a form of surgery that 30% of men go through. And uh, I guess God bless laparoscopy, right? Because I think though there's a certain amount of pain, I have a feeling it was much more painful even 10 years ago. You know? Yeah. My goodness. Yeah. Yeah. But if you see me wincing in pain every so often, oh. that's the reason. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. sorry. So today we're going to talk about something. Mike and I have been trying to talk about distributism with, with somebody for, for months. We've been, it's one of the first things we wanted to talk about when we started the podcast and, and I couldn't find anybody to talk to. And somebody recommended that we talk to today's guest, Lori Johnson, who's professor of political science and director of the primary tech certificate, which you'll have to tell me what that is, at Kansas State University. And she's got a really wonderful podcast. Um, what's the name of your podcast? I got political it right Political philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. Political philosophy, Dr. Lori. It's Johnson. excellent. It's really it excellent. Is excellent. You're That's so clear. Idol. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, so where well, I lost there, I, I'm sorry. Um, so yeah, I recommend anybody check that out. I, I've watched quite a few of the videos and it's very informative. Um, so our friend, actually our last guest, Nathaniel Heil, uh, recommended Lori to me. And it was the hardest thing to get a hold of her through the college website, because uh, I think it was your, your, your school has like a form if you want to write to a professor rather than a direct okay. email address i think it was oh my God. and i and i couldn't figure <laughs> out how to do it so i eventually what i did is i i got the email for the department secretary or the department and they hooked me up with lori which was great i think it's just that lori is a big deal and we have to go through her agents and things that's like right. that all right i've right. got keepers yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. me too it's a it's a dog it's uh that's so funny because my son does um, web scraping for a company I won't name, but like he he he's specifically about getting um, information from educational sites, you know, for um, for mailing purposes and things like that. And he he got to K State and literally was stymied, and it took him days. And so obviously, we need to do something about that. Isn't that funny? So um, to start now. I mean, my own interest in distributism and communitarianism, which is very organic. In fact, I was doing it, or at least trying to do it, long before I knew there was a term of distributism. And that was actually re relatively late in the game for me. I don't think I really heard about it till 12 years ago or something like this. Um, nevertheless, I've been an organic farmer for, you know, I don't know, 30 years, 20 years. Michael, um, you're telling me you didn't hear about distributism until about 10 years ago? Right. I don't think wow. I really got into it. Huh. Uh, not until, it, because, you know, my interest, uh, my my academic interest, it was never in political philosophy. Gotcha, gotcha. It was in literature, my doctorate's in literature. So I would pay attention to that stuff. And I was really interested in biodynamic farming and gardening at the same time. And, uh, and I was, from the beginning, and this is a good 30 years ago, even more, um, I was really interested in the CSA movement. 
you know, the community supported agriculture, which is what we do at our farm. But at that time, in I think in the country, there were only a handful of CSAs and only one in Michigan where I live. And so this idea of this kind of localist idea was really appealing to me. It just made perfect sense. And, uh, and before we, we get into the interview proper, I, there's a quote I would like to read from Hilaire Belloc's The Servile State, which really struck me when I reread it again yesterday. The present instinct, use and meaning of property is lost to it. And this has two very powerful effects each strongly inclining our modern wage earners to ignore the old barrier which lay between a condition of servitude and a condition of freedom. The first effect is this, that property is no longer what they seek, no longer what they think is obtainable for themselves. The second effect is that they regard the possessors of property as a class apart whom they must always obey, often envy, and sometimes hate whose moral right is so singular a position most of them would hesitate to concede, and many of whom now strongly deny, but whose position they, at any rate, accept as a known and permanent social fact, the origins of which have, have, they have forgotten and the foundations of which they believe to be immemorial. And that, I mean, that is really, for me, the crux of the matter. As I, as a person who grew up in the city, owning land, in fact, even 30 years ago, when my, my friend and I were investigating CSAs and we wanted to start a farm, that was the obstacle. How, I mean, how do you get land? That's a, and it took me, I, I had to flip a few houses before, before we had enough uh, capital to buy, uh, and we only have 10 acres now, but we had to keep flipping houses until we got to a place where we could actually be sustainable. You know, at least in, I didn't know that was your story with Bonnie, Michael, flipping houses to get to where you are now. Well, it wasn't it wasn't intentional. Well, it kind of was intentional. So we bought our first house and it was on a double lot because we had a big garden. It was a beautiful garden, too. And then we sold that. Well, there it wasn't just flipping houses. We were outgrowing houses because oh, fair enough. our first house had two and a half bedrooms and we have now we have nine children. So we we kept growing out of the house. So we had moved to that house to another house. And uh, that house, the second house, we had two acres and had a, we, we actually had our first CSA just growing on a half, half an acre. And I think we had 10 people. And then, you know, we need, we, we saw we needed to get more land to do what we really wanted to do because we really wanted to, to, to raise animals. And so we, we bought this place on 10 acres, which was much, uh, it's, it's, it's like the perfect um environment for for this i mean it's it reminds me of remember the old mg kane's book five acres and in independence which is from mm -hmm. the 1940s kind of part of the back to the land movement so yeah so that's part it's part of my story of how i got here but and then i found out about distributism like i said probably i bet when i really got interested in it was through my late friend stratford caldicott um, and he, when he had a chapter on it in one of his books. So, so Lori, welcome to the show. And I wonder if you could just give a kind of thumbnail sketch of what we mean by this word distributism for, for people who might not be familiar with it. Sure. I mean, first of all, I want to say I'm not necessarily a, um, an adherent of distributism. I wanted to learn about it. <clears throat> so I taught a seminar on it for, um, 
for the group um, that I mentioned earlier, the Mooring Academy, um, to learn more about it. And I got into it through the Catholic worker movement, which I also am not totally necessarily an adherent of, but I was interested in it, right? So the way that I learn about things is, is to teach them. Um, so, you know, the, so I'm sure later on we can get into why perhaps not to um, totally invest yourself in any one particular, um, you know, philosophy, whether it's e economics or whatever it is. Um, but I mean, to answer your question, it kind of emerged, I think I would say in the late 19th century, especially with the, uh, through the Catholic church and the teachings in Rerum Navarum, um, with Pope Leo XIII, who was dealing with the fact that, I mean, as I, as I read that encyclical, he seemed to be dealing with the fact that socialist thought was on the rise, socialist movements were on the rise, the working class really had a problem um, that it needed a solution to, and they were being attracted to um, the socialist movements. And um, of course, he viewed them as materialistic and sort of godless and therefore wanted to address this, um, you know, the, the obvious problems of, of just exploitation and, you know, lack of autonomy that the workers had but in a authentically like Christian way. Um, so a lot of Rerum Navarum was about, you know, actually like uh, fairly liberal in its, in its approach to property, but very, uh, very much wanting to address workers' rights and especially the right to unionize, but with a Christian overlay. So, you know, he called for Christian unionization basically or Catholic, um, Catholic organizations that could fight for workers' rights, higher pay, more involvement, and so on and so forth. Um, and there's just a little bit, actually, if you read it, there's just a little bit about actual distribu distribution of property. Right. And that has to do with land. Um, so he had noticed, you know, what also Marxists notice in their own way, which is that, you know, the beginning of capitalism starts with, uh, you know, first the throwing off of people from the land and the turning turning land into sort of like a a market um, uh, a market for tenant farming and and uh, profit making um, and in that process earlier process of enclosure right which starts mm -hmm. in the 16th 17th going into the 18th century throwing the peasants off the land that's what. Mm -hmm created this huge pool of labor that then got exploited. So he sensed that, you know, in order to reverse that, we need to somehow um, re return more people to the land and to self-sufficiency. So anyway, his, his encyclical, which I think was probably hugely controversial in his own time, which now seems rather like conservative and even not, you know, not terribly surprising, kind of got that ball rolling. And then uh, you mentioned Hilaire Belloc. I mean, there were other there are other like contributions along the way from the church. Um, you know, Belloc and Chesterton. Chesterton was a huge uh, advocate of distri distributism and um, really got in more into like the land redistribution. Um, you know, hated urbanization. So the thought behind it, I mean, in a nutshell, is people can't really have. A, any degree of independence um, without 
without self-sufficiency. Um, and you can't have self-sufficiency as an individual either. You do it through um, community, which which capitalism kind of blows up, right? Mm -hmm. uh, disintegrates community. So it usually, like I know Chesterton called for um, the breaking up of monopolies, um, government intervention to redistribute land, get more people out of the cities, back to the land where they could um, where they could feed themselves and not be so dependent upon this faceless system and market imperatives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, I think interesting. Not only was that a Catholic phenomenon at the time, the historical phenomenon, um, but uh, the Irish poet. Um, A.E. or George William Russell was also interested in the same ideas uh, for Ireland. He he saw that increasing urbanization and industrialization as as evils and throwing and I, and, I, and so part of the, for me is uh, in my work as a literary scholar. I you know specializing in, in early modern literature. I mean you read uh, Utopia by by Thomas More and enclosure is a main feature of his complaint about about the political structure right there and that was only at the beginning of enclosure and it kind of was a long drawn out um as uh e.p thompson the marxist historian said, says you know it was long and drawn out and all done legally and by laws made by the people who benefited from the laws which which tells us that things really haven't changed too much in the last few hundred years mm -hmm. yeah right um so, so my question, you know, to, to further uh, examine this is, where is this movement now? Not very far. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, and I mean, this is something that, you know, um, Spencer Hess and I do this podcast together called Dust Bowl Diatribes. And on it, we have kind of tried to inject a certain amount of economic realism into this whole discussion because without insights from Marx, and I, you know, again, like we're not, it's interesting, you know, because people want to put you in categories. We're also not Marxists, but there are certain aspects of Marx's analysis of, of capitalist economics that are, that are crucial to understanding why, where we are today, you know, what's happened. And without that, distributism turns into just kind of a a wish a nostalgic kind of looking back wanting to kind of fantasize about turning back the clock to I like to say the pioneer days obviously like you many people fantasize about um, living under some sort of feudal system as though that was that was great um but of course, it doesn't go anywhere. So we do have a lot of people kind of talking about distributism. Um, I'm familiar with and somewhat friendly with the Front Porch Republic folks, for instance. I write for them very often. Yeah, yeah I really, I really appreciate their perspective, and I consider it encouraging that they want to think about and talk about it. But I do think sometimes they get a little stuck in in that kind of just because there's you know, there's just a really powerful urge to regress right and not deal with the fact that 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 we have a such a different economy right and it's so overwhelming the political and economic forces against this kind of thing we could right. do this as individuals sort of halfway 
right? You can't survive on it though. You have to admit, like if you do um, organic farming and CSAs, um, you can do that as a sideline to something else you're doing, but you can't in the current system easily survive on that. No. Um, well, let me let me ask a question about that because Michael, this would be you know you're close to it. This summer, my wife runs uh, the domestic hall for our local county fair, and we live in an agricultural community. And I was sitting at the pie tasting contest, talk about regressive or nostalgic, but I was talking to a guy who lives among uh, the Amish in upstate New York. And his point was that because the Amish can fund each other and they can get access to capital, mm -hmm. that these small farms are in fact for them pretty productive. And he said like, his problem is he can't get access to capital. And I wonder, and I'm not trying to like draw things like at too high of a, a, a height here, you know, whether when we bring up like Bill Gates buying up all the farmland and so forth. But this guy, he was making a case to me that like, if you could get access to capital and buy say 20 acres of decent farmland, he thinks you can make a lot of money. But is that, is that mm -hmm. disagreeing with what you guys are saying? Is he wrong? You know? um, I, no, I don't think he's wrong. No, but no. like, but they're Amish and they have like a common um, belief system and a tradition in which they can mm -hmm. cooperate and even lend to each other or, mm -hmm. you know, help each other out in a huge way. And they have an identity that people recognize. And so there's a certain amount of support for them simply because people do kind of like to tap back into that older mm -hmm. traditional way mm -hmm. of life through their purchasing and so forth. But, but for the most part, we don't have that, you know, like people who go into this, um, tend to want to try to get people to support them, right, somehow. And for the most part, you find that most people in this world don't get it mm -hmm. and don't want to do that kind of work and don't want to lend you money. Uh, they want you to use the bank because there's not that level of trust. So I right, think that right, Bruderhof, right. these people have a particular um, advantage because they have a very strong identity that's shared. Mm -hmm. And that's what I see. Uh, well, I don't know about you, Lori, but where I live in Michigan, there has over the last, I don't know, 20 some years, been a great influx of Amish into certain areas. In fact, we just, a, a new community just started out maybe 15 minutes away from my house. And so as much as I can, I do business with the Amish, like for, you know, poultry processing or, or animal processing or buying feed, hired uh, Amish carpenters to put my roof in my house. Um, and because, and one of the things, because that's one of the places you see it work in, in these small scale um, communitarian also kinds of communities. Um, and, but I do see, uh, and in fact, this is what I thought, you know, with the, the onset of the pandemic, when it really looked, and I'm still, think it might be possible that, that our current monetary system might, might cave that I was, and I wrote about this in my book, Transfiguration, and thinking, you know, the part of the problem is that to do anything resembling this kind of, you know, small is beautiful enterprise, uh, and to, to uh, achieve any kind of human flourishing, you know, the, one of the big problems is you're still stuck in the, the money system of the man, right? Mm -hmm. And which was interesting. So at the beginning of the pandemic, people were, were starting to actually seriously talk about local currencies. And Mike and I were friends with uh, an economist, Guido Preparata, I don't know if you know him, who I, I encountered his work when I was working on that book, uh, because he was about one of the only scholars out there 
talking about perishable currency. Um, so, so this is a guy, Lori, too, who uh, we've probably had him on three times. Not that's when you mentioned front porch, having a long interview with him in a video recording. I try to inject uh, the antidote you and I both agree on using preparata. So he taught at the Gregorian. I think he's one of the world's foremost experts on this guy, Silvio Gassel, who wrote a book called, you know, The New Economic Order, which would say um, that, again, perishable currency, the fact that money does not correspond to the things outside of it is maybe the sin at the center of history when we look at Dante, Muhammad, and all these people. But that, you know, having it had been tried in two communities in the interwar period between uh, World War One and World War Two in Germany and Austria, you know, that when money circulates like blood you know that um or water yeah. yeah right that you know everything rises and uh preparata himself so he taught at the gregorian you know two things perishable currency and the other one which i agree with you is that um and michael and i taking some of our instincts from rudolf steiner is that this kind of nostalgic maybe too easy reaction against the totality of the industrial mode of production you know that um Carl Polanyi, who's something of a hero of mine too, he gives us the notion that, you know, the marketplace was good. If it was during these hours from 12 to three on a Saturday, these market forces were very powerful. But once they got disembedded, like a genie leaving the bottle, uh, we all became the market's, you know, puppets. Similarly, um, you know, if we can keep machines and assembly lines kind of embedded in something small and that they don't transform the whole world like they have with hospitals, and schools, you know, that everything gets transformed in their image, that the industrial mode of production where everybody has to get their hands dirty once in a while can be very useful. And I do think that's a shortcoming with some distributists and some like overly nostalgic kind of localists and so forth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they don't recognize that uh, the, the, the larger context, right? Mm -hmm. And I mean, two things spring to mind. One is, you know, at the root, as a political scientist, I tend to think that at the root of every everything good and bad is kind of like the power motive right mm -hmm. and but but along with that is also you know the state of traditions and culture um and of course the two are intertwined but we so kind of what i was alluding to before the cultural practices and traditions that would have made for something like sequestering the market into a Saturday or, you know, putting it in its proper place, they've been blown up by, you know, ba basically by liberalism, by capitalism. At this point, they're, they're kind of very, in, they're, um, oops, I'll wait. There we go, sorry about that. They, they've been degraded, you know, um, and then we have, um, you know, such powerful forces uh, wielding uh, political power across the world um, at the corporate level, right? Um, that, I mean, there's no way to fully address, uh, no, matter, no matter what you do, there's no way to fully address that problem, I think, by returning to or trying to even build cultural institutions again. I'm not sure how you do that. Um, I mean, I'm, I don't have an answer to this, but I'm not sure how you do that. I mean, one of the reasons I'm interested in the Catholic Church is because it's a very large, I'm more than interested, I'm a Catholic, but like it, as a social scientist, it's a very large and still fairly influential um, institution that's global. 
Um, and that's hard to come by. The United Nations doesn't quite cut it as far as like a culture changing vehicle, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's also why I'm interested in Marxism because I think that the the power of these corporations would have to be uh, would have to be broken up for anything new to really happen, unless of course we reach a point of just total breakdown, right? Um, in which something else can come in and fill the void. But yeah, that's what I and that's what I was anticipating. But but I think the bad guys were also anticipating that, so they're trying to move move to a new system. Yeah, right. So I mean, yeah, I mean, the point about um, money. I, I mean, we're seeing. I I don't know much about like cryptocurrency, but we're seeing like some creativity and some you know playing around with different currency systems. And I I'm I'm aware of like experiments from the past about local currencies. Um, I think both are are you know sort of like ultimately doomed because of the larger global financial system. It's too powerful, right? Mm -hmm. So we we have tried local currencies and they last for a while, but then just not enough people or things change, the little core that produced them goes away, the conditions go away. And so they crumble and even cryptocurrencies, I think, I don't know, I don't know exactly where they're going, but it looks to me like um, a lot of folks are finding uh -huh. them to be, you know, really, kind of ephemeral <laughs> yeah now you mentioned earlier i mean uh you know your interest in your <laughs> your continuation in the catholic church yeah and, and mike and i are both catholics by the way and uh and in one of your podcasts recently i i i was very struck by a statement you had you you said you know lifelong catholic i've been a lifelong catholic and i didn't hear about distributism until 10 years ago in a book right never heard about it and i went to catholic schools taught at a catholic school you know i went to, it's what talk about a failure what but I, reading the history of distributism this is goes back to the beginning with all talk and no action i think it became on behalf, you know for on me of the hierarchy i mean just i mean i yeah. is a fabulous document it, that's totally ignored by the catholic hierarchy mm -hmm. yeah. It just kind of got caught to me in like jargon so quickly that like I've worked for the church for 25 years. And uh, even when I was in grad school, it's just, you know, the, the jargon was uh, um, conservative on social issues, progressive on economic issues. The jargon was the greatest secret in the church is the social justice teachings of the church. And the jargon was, um, again, like Rurum Navarum, like it's all there. It's all there and distributism, like it was just a word, that we have a way, as Catholics, we have a way that's not socialist and not capitalist, but it just never, ever, ever got beyond that. You know, and it doesn't mean that there's, I think we all agree that there's not some great working insights that could be practical, but boy, you know, with, um, I, I just think it got, it got lifted up into the realm of jargon so quickly that it almost never landed for anybody, you know? Yeah, I mean, I've been a, I'm a Catholic convert, um, probably been about 20 years. Um, I literally have never heard of this in a church, period, full stop, never, mm -hmm. never. Um, and in fact, it took me kind of, for a while, I, I became kind of alienated, primarily instigated by the pedophile scandal. Yeah. I just couldn't, I couldn't wrap it up. Not a bad up. reason, yeah. Oh, you know. <clears throat> and so in the wake of that, in order to kind of like see if I still wanted to be a Catholic, 
I and and, and uh, Spencer and a few other people started to read some of these encyclicals and just and get a better grip on what was Catholic teaching and on the things that we cared about, like the environment, like economics. And we discovered this. And then I realized, yes, it's 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 completely ignored. And in fact, I, I mean, there's multiple reasons for this, I'm sure. But among them is just in my in my experience, Catholic priests really underestimate the intelligence and curiosity of people. So they don't think that you want to know about it. Furthermore, they they tend to be kind of cowed by, or they are conservatives, or they're cowed by the conservatives in their church, much like Protestant ministers. And they're afraid to say anything that might offend them. And so, you know, you get a lot of pablum, but you don't get um, anything much. You don't get much substance at all, let alone a discussion of Catholic social teaching. And then coupled with the fact that that they tend to be, when they do reading groups or teaching outside of the mass, it tends to be very top down. So the people who run that church decide what you're going to learn. And then in my experience, again, I mean, it could be different elsewhere, but there's not a lot of openness to oh, what do you have to say? What do you bring to the table, right? So there's there's no injection point, you know, for instance, I mean, I, I've become an admirer um, of Dorothy Day, right? Like, and I have, I've gotten the sense that there's just zero interest in, in my interest in Dorothy Day with actual Catholic churches. Um, so there's a disconnect, there's a disconnect there between, um, Catholic churches and the right. Catholic worker movement, which you would normally think they would be sort of like mutually reinforcing, but, but no. So this is a great frustration of mine for sure. Mine too. Well, I was just interviewed recently. Um, <clears throat> pardon me. I had a, a young Catholic convert <laughs> who was concerned, who wanted to know about my relationship to Dorothy Day. Like, I love her. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that was suspicious. I mean, still, it reminds Isn't me. Isn't that of, so funny? I could say unambiguously love her. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no. I mean, I said, well, what's not to love? She was, a, she lived the, the gospel in a radical way and was a daily communicant. <laughs> That's about right. as conservative a Catholic as you can get, right? Yeah. And it's interesting because I, I, you, you mentioned this, and I, it, <clears throat> there seems to be a disconnect to me between, uh, I guess, the mainstream Catholic church, which is really surreal to me. I'm, I mean, I don't understand it anymore, and I understand it even less over the last two years. Um, but so many of the people who profess to be distributist these days, um, and I know this because uh, on social media, I would try to see what kinds of distributists were out there so I could learn something more about it and see who, who's doing anything. And very few people are doing anything, but those who are, tend to think you can't be a distributist or you can't even be interested unless you're going to be devoted to the traditional Latin mass. And, you know, you, you speak mostly in Latin, during the day. you know, <laughs> what the heck? And, and, and I think um, uh, maybe the problem is, is, uh, and maybe, I don't know if this is by design, by the kind of lip service, you know, the Catholic hierarchy will pay it to distributism once in a while, once every hundred years or so. Uh, and that they're really as much slaves to the, the corporate forces as any government. Uh, and But that there's this disconnect that these people who would really like to, you know, 
to have a vital Catholic life and who are generally, I would say, pretty conservative are really interested in distributism. It's kind of a, it's a strange disconnect for me. And the, on the other hand, so many of those people, as we, we mentioned earlier, before we started recording, they, there's, a, you know, not just nostalgia, but as Mike and I call it, is there kind of a cosplay or uh, as you, you put it, they're LARPing. Um, it's just a performance art where you, you know, you get the requisite tweed, read The Hobbit once a year and smoke a pipe and still shop at Walmart. Which, which totally excludes me as a female. Like I can't wear, you know, a tweed jacket and smoke. I know. <laughs> it's all these dudes, right? You could, you could try to look like Dorothy Sayers or something. <laughs> I could try. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really, you know, so I, I don't know if this is of interest, but to me, this is, you know, a prime example. Down the road, we have St. Mary's, Kansas. And in St. Mary's, Kansas, we do have quite a, it's, it's kind of dominated by traditionalist Catholics. They've been there a long time. And I think that maybe, I mean, there probably hasn't been a Pope since I've been alive that they approve of. And I, they may be the type that think that there's another Pope out there. I'm, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. But is St. Mary's a college in this case? It is a little, there's a little, I think it's a college. I do think it's a college. Yeah. Hmm. And maybe like it, it it also extends into the lower grades as well. There's a big campus there. There's a church there. And, you know, I've heard about St. Mary's over the years, but it's always like, oh, those people, they're not, you know, so, but, but one thing I've picked up is that, that they're not, they don't approve of whether it was Pope John Paul or now, you know, Pope Francis, I'm sure Pope Francis drives them crazy, but they don't approve. And I've, I've met other people here in Manhattan that are very, very critical of, of the Pope, and they won't open their minds up to listen to anything that they don't agree with. And, it, and, and basically, they're Protestants. They're Protestants and not even thoughtful mm-hmm. ones, right? Like, uh, they don't know it. They think they're being, I mean, the old phrase, more Catholic than the Pope, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Literally. And yet those folks tend to be now the folks that have gotten back into Latin and want to do things in a very conservative way. I have, I've gone to a mass or two in Kansas City that was full on Latin. I've seen this, it was like stepping back into time, like so many altar boys that you can't even imagine it, like, you know, 15 altar boys up there. I'm not sure what they all, it was all choreographed and but, you know, to be a Catholic means to give very good, strong consideration to the teachings of the church and to sort of trust it to a certain extent, maybe not in everything, but at least in its central teachings. And, and so, you know, I think, I think there's a temptation there, and it comes partly from wanting to assert your ego over anything, including God, anything that's more powerful than yourself. I also think, though, that people... I mean, you can relate that sort of trad Catholic movement also to like the Christian nationalists of the Protestants. You can relate it to like the full on, you know, sort of racist nationalists at all. Not compl- I'm not equating these, mm-hmm. but there's a there's a national and even global phenomenon of people trying to revert back to, um, um, you know, against liberalism, against, you know, sort of globalization, against universalization. Mm-hmm and rediscover some sort of strong identity 
So to a certain extent, I want to remain open. And this is what in in the last book that I published called Ideological Possession and the Rise of the New Right, I try to use the thought of Carl Jung, um, Charles Taylor, Eugene McCarrahara, and other um, authors to understand what's really drawing people into what we might, you know, criticize as cosplay or LARPing, right? Why is it that they have, they can do that or they could even do destructive things like um, Islamic fundamentalists blowing, you know, blowing people up or the January 6th riot. Um, you know, they can do those things, but what they can't seem to do is actually change their own lives and start something constructive. And I think it's a desperation, like a sort of psychological, there's a psychological mass sickness that where people, you know, at a deep foundational level um, feel the powerlessness that they have over their lives to truly change, right? Because these larger economic forces and political forces won't allow that. Um, and as a result of that, they're sort of forced into this sort of, um, you know, performative expression um, across the spectrum, left, right, middle, you know, mm -hmm. um, and, and then the internet greatly facilitates that. So, so you know, the perfect storm is, you know, wanting this strong identity and having a place to sort of play it out, sometimes completely anonymously, right? Um, and to start to imagine that you are in a community because you are, you know, a member of this organization online or you you speak to this, this group online. Um, I would say that, you know, to the extent that people are wearing tweed jackets and smoking a pipe, they're at least a lot less harmless than people who are climbing up, you know, the the uh, the Capitol building, you know, yeah. on January 6th. <laughs> so I think you, you point out something really important there is that, um, well, it's, it's not a, a, a very simple or one, one size fits all thing. I mean, because I think part of the, what people feel alienated from the system and from the world. So I think they're attracted towards something real. They want something real. And this is what I've been writing about in sociology for, for the last 10 years or whatever. And, uh, and I think that's one of the attractions for the, the traditional Latin mass is that it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Right. And they, and, and, uh, and we had my mother's funeral a couple of weeks ago. And the, and the priest came, and afterwards I'm like, wow, that was that was basically the uh, liturgical version of a strip mall. That was about as unesthetic and mm -hmm. as it was like a it was the I always call it the it's like an infomercial for Jesus, right? Which is what you know. So people don't feel alienated by that, by the kind of uh, and and I've seen on the other hand, I've seen Novus Ordo masses that are extraordinarily beautiful but and i was an altar boy in the nova sordo as a kid even though for the last 20 some years i've been more or less a byzantine catholic for precisely those reasons that byzantine parishes tend to be smaller and the, the liturgy is still beautiful uh and it and it's not contaminated generally by um left right politics that you let you see which is it's just normal people, a bunch of people who are different come together to worship God, um, which is which is nice when you're in a minority. Um, but where it just 
so so I think people are attracted to something that's that's real, which is what attracts them to the traditional lamp mass. But then politics gets involved, and and Mike knows <clears throat> I'm hypercritical of tradies because it can get so militant, and you know, and it doesn't, you know, and so unfortunate. It's unfortunate because you know I understand the attraction for 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 beauty, and just like the people who are LARPing with the pipes and stuff. I, I understand it. You I know, totally understand. I live it, on a know? farm yeah. for precisely <laughs> yeah, those yeah, reasons, yeah. because I wanted my children to be connected to something that's real. And my, I wanted myself to be connected to something that's real. And, you know, and that's, I think the, also the attraction for me of distributism is to how do you get out of that, the corporate wage earner, uh, distance from nature and God mentality, which is which is the heart and soul, <laughs> ironically, of liberalism, right? Is to be alienated from both of those things, and right. to become you become just a, a, an avatar or a commodity of yourself, right? You become I, a brand. I guess my my shorter answer is is you can't right under the current system. Uh, unless you're independently wealthy, right? And then you can sort of do it for yourself and create a bubble. But but most people, it's just, it can't happen without a change in the larger system as much as we would like. And I'm beginning to doubt that we can do that from the bottom up. I mean, I am also attracted to localism. I think it's grand when people cooperate. It's just so hard. Um, but I was going to say something more about... Um, you, you know, had mentioned, yes, you know, a beautiful mass is better than a sort of Walmart style mass. Um, totally. Uh, it reminded me of, of something that happened to me, hmm, I think it was about a month ago. Um, our, our student church um, uh, is under construction right now. And so, and I'm a member of the, uh, basically the campus Catholic church. Um, and so I went over there for an evening mass because I was, I was thinking, well, this way I can try to not get COVID. So <laughs> it was a nine ten mass. It was on a weekday, right? So I think it was Thursday evening and we're in this cafeteria, um, with rows and rows of chairs. Uh, so it's not beautiful, but they can't help that, right? They're, they're building a very nice church, I suppose. But, um, so I'm sitting there and and pretty soon at 9:10 every seat is taken there must have been about 250 300 chairs in this cafeteria so it's packed now okay and um went through the mass it's pretty normal mass but at the end they um they they uh prayed the St Michael prayer and something else totally in Latin. They sang a song totally in Latin. And all the kids, I mean, 95% of the people there were college students. Wow. Amazing. And they were all like singing in Latin. Everybody knew it. Obviously, they'd been there a lot. And I, of course, didn't know those, right? So I'm just like, wow, and this is an interesting experience. I was really kind of rattled by it, right? Um, but but it said to me again, you know, like they're obviously when young college kids get out on a Thursday night in mass at nine o'clock to like do this and then have given the effort to memorize a Latin song and prayer, they want something and that needs to be addressed. It needs to be addressed seriously. 
um, by the church as well as by the rest of our. Absolutely. Our Absolutely. Cause I think, you know, with the, uh, that phenomenon, you know, when I, when I'm quite often describing to people like, so I run a parish, I'm a layman, I run the parish and the campus ministry, but uh, I'm always when somebody from the parish might say, gosh, the young kids are, you know, kind of showing some of this interest in Latin before, before I can even begin to maybe articulate where I might disagree with young people, my whole body wants to say, but can't you understand it? Can't you understand it? Can't you understand it when they've been uprooted from everything and their world seems to be governed by unelected you know, bureaucrats. Michael and I are always talking about this shift that everything we agree with right now used to be seen as liberal. Now it's being seen as like arch conservative, but like being run by big pharma intelligence agencies that are unelected where you have like James Clapper as a hero on CNN. Like these are very confusing <laughs> times. Um, so this reaction, I think we need to say how understandable it is. And I also think it's probably less of a threat than you know the huge land grabs by Bill Gates and so forth. You know, I don't know. Sane people could disagree, but right now, because it is cosplay too, we're laughing at the cosplay. But um, it also it draws more attention, and I think the attention because these young people are dressing up is probably disproportionate to some of the evils that I really think they're fighting. Right. So I know in our local parish too, I have fun with it. But the um, in English. A former priest started the St. Michael prayer at the end of mass. And so there's a whole body of people that say, you know, I will just not pray it. And then I tell them that like, I don't know, Leo the 13th, right? You praise him for this, but apparently he was an ignoramus when he instituted this other thing, the St. Michael prayer, just to try and keep the two factions working together that within the person of Leo the 13th, you had Rerum Navarum and you also had the St. Michael prayer, you know, and Mike Martin and I, if you've heard some of these podcasts, Lori, that this notion of the dragon, you know, the left brain, the algorithmic reptilian nested loops type of a technocracy that's descending, that some type of prayer against that is an image as opposed which both the left and the right kind of conspire towards. Um, I kind of like the imagery of that prayer, you know? And so I think these young people, in as much as we're teasing them a little bit now, boy, we need to listen to them. And again, I think more than left, right, the invitation is always towards, we need an understanding of what constitutes mature thinking. And mature thinking does not mean a move to the left because this other stuff is for the birds too, you know? Sure. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's that, like what you saw at that cafeteria, there's something that we need to listen to profoundly, as opposed to just saying it's a phenomenon of the right and let's do away with it, right? Totally. Yeah. 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 I, I don't even think for the kids, it's a phenomenon of the right. I don't think they're. No, I don't think they're thinking of that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so the church has an opportunity that I think it's missing to, to tap into this at, you know, to reintroduce some of these teachings, mm -hmm. you know, not because distributism, for instance, um, is necessarily like exactly what they ought to do or try to do to live this, live this out more fully. But um, because those teachings would get them thinking and would give them something even stronger to hold on to, right? Yeah, so that would yeah. be a bridge, you know, oh, you're, you know, they're, they're seeking something. They're seeking mm -hmm. something bigger and more authoritative than their individual choices. This is a mm -hmm. scary world. And they're being told, oh, go out and like recreate yourself you know, do everything, create the, create the wheel all over again for yourself. And by the way, the system has changed to the point where you're going to be in debt for like half your life, at 100%, least right. pretty much your whole life. <laughs> and, uh, but you know, like you're on your own and, and that's, that's 
you know, that that's just not human. And so they're seeking something. And, um, you know, I would like if I if I had my way, the church would address that at an even deeper level and start drawing them into, you know, for instance, support support workers movements, mm-hmm. support, you know, anything. I mean, most of these measures are halfway, but anything that helps people both make a living, but also have like a life. Life is not to work, but that's what we've turned turned things into. Everybody mm-hmm. works. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people for very little, um, and even people who make a lot of money, it absorbs most of their lives. There's not a home life. There's not a community life because we're all devoted to, to, to work. Um, so anything that the church could do to kind of say, okay, you want something more. Let's talk about, you know, like not only what's wrong with, with the way, you know, what society is right now, but, but like led by something like the church, you could actually start to make some changes. Yeah. You could but start he- to create some community. Uh, That's, I mean, in my like fantasy. No, <laughs> um, I like, I mean, I like that, but, and, but my, my thought, and, and actually another one of our friends and guests, Therese schroeder Schieker, we talk about this often on the phone that it's, and I think, and I see this in my college students, uh, a sense of betrayal by all of the institutions around us, I mean, including the church, that 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 uh, there's this overwhelming sense of betrayal, and that in a way that, and I call them, you know, to borrow language from Gnosticism, the archons, all the power brokers are, as you as you mentioned in one of your podcasts, in and is one of the founding in Rome Navarum is that the powers are stacked against the little guy. And as we saw through in the early days of the pandemic, when this great migration of, of money from the poorest to the wealthiest, and even where I live, um, so many small businesses went out of business. So many. And I read a stat last week that said 40% of restaurants or something or small businesses couldn't pay rent last month. You know, they're waiting for the holidays, but couldn't do it. You know, it was dreadful, and mm-hmm. and 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 it was predicted too. It was not only was it <laughs> so, and if it was predicted, it was probably avoidable. But but I think it was by design, you know, which is why. Um, so what's left with us in, is left to us and to these young people that that we teach is trying to. I mean, this is the classic thing. How do I? How do we then live? How do we find a way to live an authentic human life? And 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 and, and I think in, in the terms of distributism, I, um, at least as we understand it, I think probably the biggest problem is it's been ghettoized. Is it just a Catholic thing for a very small minority of Catholics? But though I think this is something that has a much wider appeal, and even outside of religious contexts. At this sure. at this time in history, anyway, maybe a hundred years ago, it was um, more of a Christian thing, and I think you know its underlying principles are certainly Christian. But right. but I think that there's a wider appeal where I'm, I'm wondering is is it time for for a secular reiteration, or or do we just need rebranding in this dis- distributist project? Well, I 
I don't know, but I, I, I know it can't be done through just a few people who tend to be, you know, traditional Catholics. Obviously, that's not distributism. You know, when you read Chesterton, for instance, he was calling for the government to make changes that would allow um, for more property ownership. So you can't just say, oh, you know, I, like Benedict option style, I'm just going to go to a town, you know, I mean, that's like the best you can possibly hope for. I'm going to go to a town where there's more people like myself mm -hmm. and we'll do it together, you know, or or I'll try to do it in my own, you know, my own neighborhood or something like that. Um, Chesterton was, was saying, no, you know, the government created this problem by favoring industries that were larger and, right. and and you see that all the time, you know, here in my own town, um, the the local government decided that big box stores were, for some reason, better, probably better for their tax hall yeah. in the long run, maybe, I don't know, but <clears throat> better than, than local businesses. And so they used eminent domain to basically um, roust out a, a lot of local businesses. And now we have um, Bed, Bed Bath and Beyond and, you know, Best Buy and, and all of that, right? <laughs> yeah. and, and they did that. They did that. Mm -hmm. You know, they they decided that. And I think that that's partly what people need to, to know is that distributism is not this sort of like individual decision. I'll just live this way and talk this way. It is, it, it is brought about just like land reform in other countries. It's brought about by government. And usually that involves some sort of, if not a revolution, some sort of um, very strong upswelling of just mm -hmm. discontent that forces a government to change its, you know, way of proceeding in support of more um, distribution or redistribution of property. Right. Um, and I, I think, think like, you'd really like this book, Laurie, this, uh, uh, this preparata, because he wrote it with a bunch of friends at the Vatican. It's called New Directions in Catholic Social and political thought. And it's the only thing I read. And that's why I reached out to him as I read his work. And then we became friends. And I traveled over to Italy in the fall to meet with him and some Italian anarchists to talk about perishable currency, because uh, we had talked about local currencies. One people who were there, they're the founders of Sardex, which was a local currency uh, after 2008 on the island of Sardinia. That's still just thriving throughout Italy. Now it's got some downsides and it's not perishable. That being said, this book New Directions was truly, for me, who's been reading into this stuff for 20 years, um, the only thing new, you know, and there's a great chapter in there on, again, the neoconservative takeover of the church, right? <laughs> and uh, it's written by a guy who's now in, this is paradoxical, like Opus Dei, his name is Jeff Langan. He used to be at uh, Notre Dame and a guy, like, you never know where it's going to come from, but they've assembled some of the people who kind of get it. But the, um, you know, where where we're going to go um, you know, when you read the book I have over here, I photocopied it years ago is Chesterton's, or I'm sorry, Bellock's smaller book, The Redistribution of Property, right? And at least, you know, the idea that they saw that you could have a smaller government, but also pretty powerful on this idea of, you know, I think there's a movement in Vermont of Vermont secessionism where, because it's a small state, you know, the right says, yeah, we don't want our National Guard guys fighting in these and dying over in Afghanistan. And the left says, we don't want more than one McDonald's total in Burlington. You know, but you could have um, the redistribution of property. Belloc shows that it could be a, a small government that with just simple laws would say, 
you know, your first McDonald's, it's not going to be taxed too high. Your second within this geographical reason is going to be taxed really high. And a third one is just completely inconceivable. You know, and for all my reading of distributism, um, what's wrong with the world? I've read it many times. That's about the only thing <laughs> that kind of stays with me. Like that might be doable, but like that the imagination could think of a government to favor the right that's smaller, but also just in crucial areas has really strong coercive powers, right? Sure. Yeah, it would have to. Yeah, if you if you don't have something like that in the current under the current conditions where the cultural factors are kind of blown up, you would just get the reemergence of the same problem we had. It probably 100%. 20 years and everything would be back to the way it is now, right? Uh, right. Because it's so in lieu of um, actual cultural cohesion, the only thing you've got is a strong government, which in mm -hmm. and of itself is a is a is a tragedy, right? Tragedy. But it is also probably at least in the short run, maybe even medium run, like an irreversible tragedy. So, mm. you know, and then the question would be, can you have that form of government without it becoming its own a menace? Which right. to me means you have to have some liberal elements within that government, even mm. though liberalism has, you know, I think caused a great, the, our going down the liberal path has caused a great deal of destruction. But one liberal element is proceduralism, right? Just like building into place checks, a certain amount of checks and popular checks on any sort of government that you have. Um, because otherwise, if you give that kind of power to a government, you've got even bigger problems than we have now, you know? So um, the, the modern tendency is, is totalitarianism and tyranny. Um, and that, you know. <laughs> to put it simply right yeah <laughs> yeah oh canada yeah um, <laughs> so, so uh interesting i mean you, you mentioned i mean we're talking about redistribution redistribution of property well it's already happening it's going from the small to the big right like right 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 with and which is that's nothing but an uh this the just the new form of enclosure you know, eminent no domain, so you can put up a big box store. But also, you, I see around here is these little uh, subdivisions of McMansions will go up, right? Which will raise the taxes. And this is John Taylor Gatto, I think, was the first one who brought this to my attention. That the, so the taxes go up, and then in these rural communities like where I live, then the, if the taxes go up around these these uh, these uh, McMansion neighborhoods, then it spreads out. Then the farmers, you know, like us, their their taxes go up. Then they can't. Then eventually they can no longer afford to keep their land because the taxes are ridiculous, and they have to sell. Which was by design how it was happening in the first place. So you get gentrification, and you know what happens is uh, real estate agents start to to populate the the local boards, and then it's game over for yeah. a, a livable life yeah that's well said yeah we have our own uh, mcmansion subdivisions out west here and when i drive through them which i don't even know why i did the last i've 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 been out there can't remember why it's just i i look at that and i'm like where where are these people coming from because, you know, I make a decent living as a university professor, but I in no way could afford, you know, one of these, I mean, they've got to be like 500,000 to a million dollar like homes. And there's a lot of them. And, and they're is, ugly. Yeah, this is, yeah, they're ugly. There's no trees. It's, it's characterless. 
And this is dinky Manhattan, Kansas. And I, I sincerely, you know, don't know where they're coming from. It, but you know, they're. That's a great phrase. I sincerely don't know where they're coming from. I feel the same way. I, I honestly don't know where they're coming. I don't know. From. Yeah. yeah, where is the money coming from? Yeah, is yeah. It I feel the same way. California, or you know, yeah. like, but there's such a gap. There's such a gap between that way of life and even my way of life, let alone the way of life of people in our town. Like so many towns, you go rich, middle class, poor geographically. Right. Mm -hmm. Like there's an end of town that's that's pretty poor. Then you've got the middle, which is middle class. And out there on the west side where the hills are, you've got, mm -hmm. you've got the wealthy. And that's the you know, the strangest thing is, I think even when I was a kid, the difference between a middle class person and a wealthy person culturally was not that great. You know, they could still be in the same rotary club together or whatever. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Now it's really huge, mm -hmm. right? And then you're in total different planets between the wealthy side of town and the and the poor side of town. Yeah. And they have contempt for each other, I think. So so there's so little overlap. It's difficult to even, I mean, this is a huge part of the problem too, is we can't even talk to each other. We're in different worlds economically. Mm -hmm. One one thing I saw that like I'm always looking. You know, so if the worst is the corruption, the best, I read an article, say, 20 years ago, and it was called Worms in the Leviathan, which obviously brings up Thomas Hobbes, right? And we think we're living in something of a Leviathan. But it pointed out how uh, when we mention McMansions, you know, we can think of gated communities where a big tract of land is brought. So let's think of Sun City, Arizona. I've had two uncles who live out there. You know, somebody buys a big tract of land over an aquifer, and they don't need to do this, and they don't need to do this, and they have some autonomy. But you know, when we think of that being done for gated communities, a lot of us want to kind of throw up a little bit in our mouth and so forth. But the same thing, if we're really struggling to say where could we try new experience, experiments, is that same, um, that same possibility of buying a large tract of land. You know, I think of the monastery, 2,700 acres over there. It can be used for some experiments, right? You know, that, um, that could be, you know, they're seen as a worm in the Leviathan. You could set up your own school system. Now, you and I, I think we all feel, I can't judge you, Lori, but like when when these things start, they can easily become tyrannical, right? And I do love my experience working in a monastery for so long because there's a lot of wisdom in how local communities form. But Mike and I, we also did a, a show, a podcast one time on, you know, the parallel polis that, you know, are we, are we living in a society right now where we have to start, you know, building new polises within the current polis? And I know I'm still kind of like, that's the song I'm singing that like things have come to such a pass. We've talked about young people and how this hopelessness that they feel, this anonymity in the face of like these faceless institutions that have so much power, there is a sense of urgency. And I think we have to start trying these things that some people might find, you know, kicksodic, you know, that some of these small little enterprises, because uh, one of them, one of them might take off, you know, and again, like smaller scale political entities. I think the key word subsidiarity, it's another jargon word, right? But to study Dorothy Day and, and is to know that it's real, that I just don't see the church ever giving us teeth in that to say, no, the smaller entity is the better one, is the better one by far. And we have to keep on teaching people that the smaller entity where you know people face to face, you're less likely to treat them like objects. You know, we have to, and the American Solidarity Party, pretty good. I wish they were called the American Subsidiarity Party. I think we'd actually get farther. Because I think of those two, 
know, jargon-esque Catholic words, subsidiarity is even more important to me, should probably be the lead dog in the sled over the word solidarity, which can kind of mean everything and nothing. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's definitely the route to a more interesting life. Um, sure. Like have direct contact with other people and to begin to rely on them. It's really hard. So I kind of wish my um, podcast partner was here. Spencer has. He's to look him up. He's been in, yeah, we, we might like to interview you guys and you can be in that way uh, if you would think about it, but uh, Spencer has been trying to do something like this at a fairly small scale um, in Kansas city. Um, He's been there for about Kansas city, Missouri for about, I want to say five years now, maybe four. He has some land um, which he farms. He started out trying to form a small community among friends, and he just couldn't get anybody to buy into it, even though they did share some values in common, particularly an interest in, if nothing, I mean, I guess I would say localism or, you know, cooperation and communal living, an interest in um, organic farming, small farming. And, but when it came right down to it, it was too scary for any of them. He can tell this story better, but, but uh, one stuck around for a while, but, but he too left for a conventional job mm-hmm. because, because the risk, I, I mean, I'm, I'm interpreting, I don't know what goes up. The risk was too great. The idea that they might be making a mistake that you know, what's going to happen to me when I'm, which is a legitimate worry. Like when I have an illness, when I am old, you know, like, am I going to actually be able to count on this? Uh, Is this going to grow? Um, And of course you've got, they, they would have a lot of other people kind of talking to them, like their parents and their friends saying, what are you doing? You know, like, that's crazy. Um, You're giving away like your financial security. Of course we know like financial security is, is, what does that even mean? You know, when you pretty ephemeral nowadays, right? Right, right. So it's always been really like it's it's one, you know, so it's one disease or one stock market crash away, but like, um, so, so, so he literally couldn't get anybody to do that. So then he turned to like market gardening to try to at least do, um, you know, the organic farming and with the idea that maybe, you know, showing that you could supply people at the local level with, with food and he lives in a, this is a fairly poor area. This is the east side of, of Kansas City, Missouri. So it's it's kind of um, um, racially mixed. There's a lot of Hispanic people. Um, there's like just a lot of poverty um, and places are kind of run down. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in that, you know, he tried to cooperate, or I should say we, because I'm in the mix as well as some other people at that point, but try to cooperate with Catholic Worker House there. Um, didn't get a whole lot of traction because they weren't interested in taking the food because they hmm. were so they were so addicted to um, the food trucks, right? Yeah, I mean, not like, the food trucks, but like the food banks, right? The food that's donated from grocery stores. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's easier for them to produce, yeah. right? So they wow. they really didn't want that. Um, he couldn't, could in no way make enough money to support himself with the, with the people. Um, there was a little bit, you know, who would buy his produce. There was a little We found bit- that our local Catholic worker house only wanted eggs. Like if yeah. we had organic eggs, they really wanted those. Which but is, they, wow. no. <laughs> this one didn't trust eggs either. Okay. Um, because, yeah. you know, they, 
when chickens poop them out, I don't know where else they come from, but when chickens poop them out, there might be some poop on them. Poop them out. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so, you know, like he, he, he experienced a little upswing during the pandemic because of supply chain issues. And it was kind of hopeful. We thought, well, maybe people will learn from this, that it's really kind of, it's just kind of stupid to, to like, hope that you can get all your food from some far flung place, maybe, you know, but it didn't last. And mm -hmm. so um, at this point, he has turned to homesteading and is going to turn his, he, we've sort of renamed that farm, the John Paul II Catholic Worker Farm, mm -hmm. but it's basically a homestead where, where we hope to show what you can do when you're just trying to like feed yourself on, on your, through your own labor to the extent that you can. Right. But, but so I guess what I'm trying to say is like, I've, I've lived through, you know, this, this example, I've watched Spencer struggle and I know he's not alone. It's so hard to get other people to cooperate with you, whether it's, wh whether it's partners in some sort of like cooperative setting um, who are too afraid, whether it's like consumers who, who sort of say they get it, but won't actually won't actually put their dollars consistently where their mouths are, to even institutions like the church or a charitable institution or even a Catholic worker house right. that don't really get the value of cooperating at a deeper level. It's really hard. Okay, so I'll shut up. But like, right. that's no, but I, I, get think, it. I, get it. I think you're right. I mean, I think that. I mean, even the Catholic wor worker is contaminated by corporatism, right? Yeah. Which is, you know, the food bank thing. Which I, the ir irony, you know, I told you that the, I used to be the gardener for a, a first-generation Catholic worker, and there was a Catholic worker farm, maybe forty miles away from here, back in the forties and fifties. And our our friend Larry Chap has a Catholic worker farm in where's he in Pennsylvania? He's Western in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Yep. Pennsylvania. Um, but the other, the other thing that gives me hope, though, as I mentioned earlier, so now I became a full-time farmer five years ago, 2017. So I was at a, a small Catholic liberal arts college, which suddenly tanked. We, we In August, we, we, in July, we got our contracts. August 1st, we got a letter saying this, the college will close at the end of the fall semester. Yeah, that was that's how they that's how they roll, um, and so they what am I gonna do? You know, I didn't want to move. Too old, you get a I'm not gonna apply for a job someplace in a different state. So we had this farm. So we said, oh, let's let's throw let's throw that together. Let's try to do that. And it, it's it's a it's a lot of work and it's not a lot of money, um, but it's very satisfying. But where I'm going with this is so 30 years ago when I first found out about the CSA movement, there was one CSA in the state of Michigan and maybe 10 in the entire country. Nobody knew what it was. But now, um, from where I sit, uh, I think within a 15, 20 mile radius, I know of at least five CSAs. So it's certainly, and even though I sometimes have to still explain what a CS what CSA stands for, uh, more and more people know about it, and more and more people are interested. And I think, but I think like you like you said earlier, it's gonna it's gonna take a paradigm shift. 
or yeah. the next big crisis, right? I mean, well, it's going to take a crisis yeah, or yeah. the collapse of governments and corporations, in oh, a, yeah. which I pray for daily. Um, well, imagine um, the government, instead of spending billions to support big ag, took even a fraction of that amount of money to support national security interest of local agriculture. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, yeah. and they don't. They go. In fact, that's what we mentioned. Bill Gates gobbling up all the all the farmland. Um, and the thing is, even with big ag or some of the even bigger family farms uh, around, they would not exist were it not for being subsidized. Because mm -hmm. farming is basically a break even enterprise. We make money not a lot, but we make it because we don't. We're small scale. We do. We don't use. Uh, any power tools um so that we don't have as much overhead as a lot of those places mm -hmm. so there's a higher profit margin not not huge but there's it's but you can see it, it's called sustainable agriculture for a reason because it's not just sustainable to a degree and if we had if we had more space which we're thinking about selling our cows and going back to goats so we have a bigger garden um it's sustainable not only financially, but it's sustainable environmentally, and it's sustainable um, psychologically too, because it 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 restores sanity. But like you said, and as your friend Spencer is that his name, mm -hmm. there's the risk is is real, right? The risk is real that you know, and we did see the the first year of COVID and the pandemic. Um, we did see an explosion in interest in joining the CSA, which trailed off the next year, but not 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 considerably. But it's it's a it's a not an it's not an easy gig, um, and market forces right? are against us. Yeah, I I think it's I think having um, selling meat is probably uh, makes it a lot more likely that you can make a living. I think that it you just make more money doing it. And and I would agree with you on everything else you said that it it, it can be like self-sustaining in the sense that you don't need a lot of inputs for that type of farming. That's what that's what makes it so great. Um but uh yeah like if if you're if a person has enough land where they have uh cattle, goats, you can do chickens. Um then you probably have more of a chance of making enough money to be able to to make a profit than if you're just vegetable gar gardening, right. which is which is what he's trying to do. Mm -hmm. um, but that might be an argument for getting more land. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm, it's good to hear that you're able to do it. Um, I mean, no, I still have to. I still have to do other things to make, to make money. But uh, <laughs> but but so do most farmers I know. Even the guy I buy hay from has pretty. He's got a couple hundred acres. He still he works as an accountant, you know. So that's just how it is. That's the, that's the reality as it is. But but I think um, in a way, we're hope we're. My dog is barking. I don't know why. We're we're moving toward the future in this. You're kind of setting planting these seeds, not for now, but but for the future, you know, to show that it's possible, and then hopefully. We'll see what happens. Mm -hmm. That's that's keep great. the fire burning. Yep. Right. I just I just really would love I mean to see a, a even a minor shift in our funding um, situation because 
you know, food in this country is so highly subsidized. People, people aren't paying anything like what it actually would cost to produce it, right? The Mm -hmm. government's just, they support the, the big farms and they support the consumer. It is the social, it is the most socialized part of our economy. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what, that's what the local farmer is up against who can't plug into that. Right. You know, they can't plug into the subsidization. They can't compete with the very low, unrealistically low prices of things in grocery stores. And that's due to the government intervention. And so, you know, to get back to distributors, uh, they they would definitely call for that, right? Like a, mm-hmm. a reorientation of both government funding and breaking up these big agricultural, like Tyson, you know, like right. practical monopolies, Um well, and now the U.S. government, I don't know if you're aware of this, they, they want to have a, a census of, of gardens, of people's gardens, what? including ours, right? Oh, yeah, because I'm sure they're coming to get us next. I'm, oh, sure. No. I'm sure of it. What the yeah, heck they, is that really? What is that about? I we mean, got a letter two years ago at the beginning of the Biden administration where they, it was a voluntary thing. How many animals do you have? What, what and how much do you grow? Like, none of your business. And it was voluntary, so we ignored it. And it's it's they're on their way toward mandatory. And not only for people like us with a, you know, I think our garden's an acre and pasture, but even people with smaller uh gardens. My goodness. And I think it's like uh and they came to take a census. You know, we're heading towards the Christmas oh, yeah. season. Maybe yeah. when they finally take a census of every little animal, we'll have the birth, uh, the second coming of Christ, right? That's right. <laughs> That's my, 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 uh, in the, my old In the middle Hebrew of the teacher. census, yeah, in the middle of the census of everybody's chickens. My uh, old Hebrew teacher, <clears throat> uh, Rabbi, <laughs> he said, Mike, let me tell you something. When they when they start counting Jews, it's bad news. And, it, and it's, yeah. the, it's the same thing with anything, you know, it's, it's potentially bad news. And, and we looked at that as a handwriting on the wall, you know, sure. but anyway. I mean, you can outlaw whatever you're doing in the name of health and safety, right? Sure, like, health and yeah. safety, that's seen right. so much of that. And so that could just. Security. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. Um, and, and the Obama administration, actually, they were trying to. I don't know if they're outlawing, but they were they were they were after compost. Really, they were after compost because they they were afraid it was getting, it was contaminating food. I just think of how like we people have just lost the taste of whole milk, or that people are weirded out by uh, brown yeah. eggs. Right now, like a no, I've got maybe just I've just got some chickens, but people see that you know rich orange yolk, and it actually makes people freak out now. Yeah, right? like what's wrong with it? What's yeah. Wrong? Just, you know, slowly but surely yeah we we've uh, grown that the, the the real kind of makes us feel viscerally you know ill at ease that's right quite often. yeah can you wrap yeah. it in plastic first yeah. yeah yeah all right well i think that's a wonderful i mean probably a good place to stop and uh Lori, this has been such a pleasure for really has Lori. yeah same here it's really great to meet you guys and love your podcast and you know uh hope that that Spencer and I can have you on ours. That would be wonderful. Do, do so, that. and count on me to start listening to those. The name of your podcast, Lori, and how else can people get in touch with like the book you mentioned and things like it's that? It's called Dust Bowl Diatribes, okay. and uh, so that's on all the platforms. Um, mm-hmm. And then Peter Morin, uh, if if people just Google um, the Morin Academy, 
Okay. Uh, they'll mm-hmm. get the website that hosts that podcast. Um, and my book is called Ideological Possession and the Rise of the New Right. It was published by Rutledge in 2019. And don't you have a new book coming out from Whip, Whip and yeah, Stock? Yeah, Whip Stock book. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm, I'm behind by about a year because uh, I had a couple of deaths in the family. It was really sorry to hear that. But uh, but I'm kind of back on and I've got a sabbatical this spring and it's it was tentatively titled the gap in God's country because it's going to focus on um, the Midwest and politics in the Midwest and the rural urban divide, uh, but but more through a religious lens than any of my other books have done. It's so, like uh, what's the matter with Kansas with uh, kind of a religious gloss? Yeah, with yeah. a fairly serious religious gloss plus yeah. a lot of like fairly heavy Marxist economics. Uh, without actually like saying that <laughs> maybe I don't know like I think I I'm not trying to hide anything but when you yeah. say Marxism people get scared but like literally we do need to understand the dynamics of our economy so I'm going to be injecting some of that good okay. good well well thank you so much yeah. thank you for coming on the regeneration podcast we are uh, looking forward to talking to you everyone again